and you came so close. How did it escape you, Jana? Too close. I came too close. I felt that uh, I just didn't handle it well, I guess, at the end. And Steffi became stronger and stronger at the end, and I just could never stop her. Was it nerves, finally, at the end? I don't know. I don't know. I don't think so. I just uh, think that uh, I couldn't get started very well, and I was not as fluent on, in the previous matches. And uh, today I had to very work very hard for every point, and I just guess I didn't handle it well at the end. That's all. Very collected Jana Novotna after what many people consider one of the, the biggest chokes in tennis history. And that's what we're going to look at. Choking, what is it? What are the different types of chokes? Because it's certainly not one size fits all. We're not talking about a shower cap or a hospital gown here. So we're going to look into the intricacies of the choke. Is tennis one of those sports that creates an environment that facilitates choking? Great players who went from chokers to champions and, of course, the most memorable choke in tennis history. That's a fair amount that we are going to be covering today, Mm. but I think you'll find it very fascinating. I hope so. Well, not you, them. (laughs) Buzz, have you ever choked on something yourself? some chicken and a wishbones lodged in your throat. I was once eating a Vietnamese pho, which is like a beef soup, and the chilli went down the wrong pipe and I actually started to choke. I was sitting there in, in, in a restaurant trying not to panic. So, yeah, in effect, it was choking. So at that point, for you, it became a matter of life versus death. The thought would have flitted through your mind. It was interesting because I thought if my throat doesn't relax here in a second, I'm in trouble. Yeah. And I was really trying hard not to panic, but in my head I was thinking, oh, my God, what if this Mm. doesn't relent? What's going to happen then? Yeah. You know? Now, on a tennis court, choking is fear, but it's fear of losing versus the fear of winning. Now, I've got an interesting theory here, but stay with me on this. I'm here. You might associate winning on a tennis court, if if we're going to run a parallel, with life, winning equals life, losing equals death. But how about if we look at winning as being symbolic of completion, an end point? Winning is actually fulfilling the death wish because you reach that point and you're overwhelmed by the fact that I finalise something. So do some players see victory as something that they need to walk away from because they don't want to complete the cycle. So it's not actually a positive for them to win. It becomes something else altogether. On a subconscious level, for them, it's the opposite. There is a climactic moment Mm. and it's done. Yes. And so what you're saying is does that then reference someone's own idea of death? On a subconscious level. On a subconscious level, yeah. And if they miss that point... They live to fight again another day. That's an interesting theory. Do you think some people have a fear of winning because it's a fear of what's then expected of them once they've won? Once you win and you're a champion and you're in that space, is that a fear then of, well, am I up to that space? That could be another thing that's going through the subconscious of a player, but I just think uh, this whole idea of it's fear of winning or fear of losing and the interpretation people put 
on both of those. Let's look at what choking is mm. because in regards to tennis, when most people think of choking, it's usually when you've got a lead, when victory is in sight. Yes. That's the classic idea yes. of choking. Now, I think in terms of research, they look at it as any time that you're not performing to your maximum for whatever reason. Mm. So in other words, it doesn't have to be when you're about to win. It could be you're playing it a certain way and then you drop off. That's choking. That's not really what we're talking about. No, no. We're talking about the finish line is in sight and that's when the mind kicks in or whatever it is mm. and your performance dips markedly. Yeah. Now, is it a single moment or is it a series of moments? That precipitates the choke or that defines the choke? I think that defines the choke. I'd love to look back at classic choke matches and isolate the moment. And I think you'd find the moment, and I think if you ask the player on the other side of the net, the chokey, did you feel the moment? I think they would say, yeah. I think that they would recognise the moment when the door opened for them. Yeah, and sometimes it's really overt, isn't it? It's really obvious when it happens. But you pick up a lot of nuance and subtlety on a tennis court. Yeah. You're very aware there's, a, there's a, an energy happening. And it's almost once the door opens, you can't close it. I think some players are more aware of it than others. I really do. Some players are more cerebral on the court. Some players think more. They always say, yeah. trust the process. Think of nothing but the process. But some players, they think on court. They're always thinking. You watch a McEnroe match, he's got all sorts of stuff going on in his head. But is that at the moment when he's playing? Because the mm. thinking that comes in during a point has to be a strategic idea. That's interesting, because, and I think that's something we'll get on to later where I want to throw a slightly Darwinian look at this in the sense Ooh. of the tennis environment almost fosters choking yeah. for a number of reasons. But we'll, yes, get onto we'll get on to that. Let me ask you this. Do you think that an umpire during the course of a match should be allowed to call a choke when it happens because they're there, they're getting the vibe, 30-40, Mr. Gaudio, choke. So, for example, in 1993 when Yana Novotna double faulted in that crucial moment in the third set, the yeah, umpire, umpire says, advantage graph, choke Novotna, you have two chokes left. That's right. There could be a quota or is there a warning? Often you're in the crowd watching and there would be some people who wouldn't identify a choke, but if they're informed of it, does it pique their interest and think, ah, there's choking happening here. Mm. Do you think choking is contagious? Do you think one player can choke and then the other player catches it? So you end up with both players like yawning, choking. Like yawning. Would it come to a point where the referee needs to come out, have a word, maybe slap the players around a little, say, what's going on? Stop choking and get on with it. Yeah, we've got paying customers here. You're choking. You're letting each other into choking. Yeah, I just, we talk about ways of trying to introduce a little bit more theatre into tennis, and people will choke until the sport ends. Do you think perhaps the umpire could, should get off his chair, come down and give the Heimlich to one of the players? Something physical that everybody can see and understand and say, okay, oh, there's a choke yeah, going he's on. He's choking here. I, I didn't pick that up, but he's choking. The umpire's called it. Yeah. Oh. What, what if the umpire comes down and starts to give the Heimlich to someone who's not choking? They're going to say, what the hell are you doing? I'm just, you know. Should the umpire do it or should the player's coach be the person, more appropriate person? I I don't think that would be should ever come down onto the court. Maybe they should have a choke umpire. I think once somebody starts choking, that it's hard to talk them out of it. I don't think think words are enough. That's not enough. I think the Heimlich manoeuvre is probably a good idea. I think it's an excellent idea. We talked about anxiety, it's about fear. Mm. 
Now, the difference between anxiety and choking. So, for example, you go for a job interview. Now, you might not perform to your best in that situation mm. out of anxiety. Or you go on a date mm. and you come away from that date going, oh, I, just, I wasn't myself. Yeah. You know, I was trying too hard or I was just overthinking things or whatever. Yeah, yeah. Is that choking? I would call it a choke if the date is going really well. You're at that point where you're just about to maybe kiss the girl. That's at the point where you choke where you start babbling like an idiot or you accidentally headbutt the lady because you've been playing a great game and you can see that there's going to be some sort of wonderful fulfilment to the evening and that's when you blow it. Or more likely, she's looking at you, she wants you to kiss her, mm. then you do start babbling or you do something, you don't pick up in the cue, but you know the cue's there, but oh, you yeah. can't just take the cue yeah, out of fear. That, that's what I would consider to be more of a choke. The other question is once you choke... How can you dislodge it? Is it there to stay? Can you de-choke during a match? Well, the problem with choking in terms of tennis that we're talking about is usually it's when the finish line is in sight. Mm. So it's not earlier in the match where you've got time to overcome it. It's usually towards the business end. Do you have time to overcome well, it? Well, you know, yeah, if you're five-set match, you're serving for it. In the third, you, you choke. There's another couple of sets still. To that's play. true. That's absolutely true. So I there's a bit of time, but... And that's why I'm glad you're here to pick me up on that sort of thing. You're welcome. Now, the other thing is, can choking spread to other parts of a tennis player's life? You're a choker on court. Well, are you a choker in the supermarket? Do you know what I'm saying? Like, do you take your choking off court with you? So give me an example. Do you have an example? We're going to talk about Ivan Lendl. Yeah. But he went through that period, of course, in the early 80s, where he's hailed as the next big thing. He lost his first four Grand Slam finals. You know, he was starting to get a bit of a reputation there. It's a lot. It's a lot, but on his... That's more than most players ever make. Well, that's true. Unfortunately, it was a reputation he was being tagged with. And upon his entry back into Czechoslovakia, walking through customs, they stamped his passport, choker. That's how strongly they felt about it. Until he won his first Grand Slam final, he was walking around with a passport with choker stamped on it. And that's that's an example of, of where it's gone off the court and into his life. Well, not only has it gone off the court, but they've actually had to go out and have a stamp made. I mean, there's some effort involved in that. That's not just, they didn't, they didn't have a choker stamp already there. Well, true. So are you saying when it hits other areas of someone's life, are you talking about the way people treat you or are you talking about are you choking in other parts of your life? But yeah, I think it's both. You walk around feeling like a choker and you project that onto people who may or may not be looking at you in a way. What if, though, choking is just something that is confined to tennis, it's compartmentalised to tennis in your life, everything else, Mm. you have the Midas touch. And yet when you get on a tennis court and your chosen sport, your chosen field, you get out there and you you have the opportunity, whenever you get the opportunity, you choke. Mm. It doesn't make sense, does it, really? It would be interesting to to be able to discuss this with some of the great chokers in tennis. How do you approach them? How do you write a letter to someone and say, dear choker... <laughs> yeah, you have to be very careful with your words. I think I think, so. And I think you'd have to bring it into the discussion in a way that they're not aware that you're actually talking about them. Otherwise, they'd choke. Thank you. Quiet, please. Now, we're going to look at the whole area of environment and choking, and I guess looking at whether or not tennis in itself, oxygenates choking. The first thing I want to bring up is 
the silence in a tennis match. It's quite unique. I know there are a couple of other sports where it comes into play, but not very many where in between points or leading up to points, silence is encouraged. And I'm wondering, is that one of the things that allows thoughts to start creeping in? When talking about silence, obviously if you're playing at your local club or you're playing a lower level of tennis than obviously slam tennis, silence is part of it because there's not a crowd there. But at Wimbledon, you've got the crowd applauding and then that sudden mm. silence where you've got 10, 12,000 people there silent. And mm. that you, you must be aware of that. And that time when a point ends and you walk back to the baseline, either settling in to receive or getting ready to serve, yeah. those moments sometimes of silence are just amplified. You have to do something there and it's very hard not to think. In that silence, what rises up for you? You know, it's, right. it's a fertile yeah. bed, isn't it? Oh, it's, yeah. absolutely. And let's talk about singles. There's no team to help or hide you when you have no. that moment of doubt. It is very much you under a spotlight. Yeah, I mean, we've seen team sports where players have choked. It happens in every sport. Sure. There's nowhere to hide in the tennis court. No. You're there alone and you have to handle whatever's happening alone. Hmm. Very tough situation. I mean, even boxers get to go to their corner at the end of a round. Well, that's right. On a tennis court, the sole responsibility resides within the individual, which is why one of my theories is that a tennis player, for example, who had multiple personalities wouldn't choke. If they had 10 or 12 different voices in their head, this could be their internal team. And I'm just wondering if that would be something that would help somebody not to choke. Depends who those personalities are. You mean if some of the personalities were chokers, there could be a problem? Well, if some of the personalities just weren't tennis players <laughs> to begin with. It could be a to, distraction. They didn't know how to hold a racket. No, I'm, I'm talking about personalities who are encouraging and saying, Oh, well, I said just come that. on, Jack, you can do it. We're here yeah. with you. You missed that shot, but you're going to get the next. And there'd be your voices in there and they'd be saying, yeah, hey, I've got a team here with me, you know? You're saying this internal crowd of enthusiastic supporters. Yeah. So that would be one of the things. If I was coaching young kids today, I would try and develop multiple personalities within them to try and overcome that whole issue of choking. It's a radical theory, I know, but I think something needs to be done. And and that's why if you become a coach, I'm going to alert the authorities almost immediately. (laughs) Now, the scoring system. The most peculiar scoring system in the world almost. The very nature of it makes moments bigger than others and that has to add to this whole thing about this is important. I'm going to start worrying if I don't win this point. If I win this point or if I win the next two points, I'm home. It just makes a difference. Well, you know the feeling when you're down 1540 on your serve and those thoughts in your head, oh, my God, I'm in trouble here. And those thoughts start at love 30 if you're serving. Yeah. The thoughts are already starting. Yeah. And, and each point, the thoughts start coming, yeah. the points get bigger. And I think, again, that's another thing that's very unique to tennis. That's why tennis players are taught, and especially at that level we're talking about, to play every point as it comes. And I know it's a cliché but not to think of what's happened before, what's not going to happen in the future. Mm. I think a really, really revealing comment by Rafael Nadal was in the 2008 Wimbledon final against Federer, he played a remarkable forehand in the fourth set tiebreaker to bring up match point. I mm. think you know which one I'm mm. talking about. Oh, yeah. To me, it's one of the greatest forehands I've ever seen. He said later, for the first time in his career, mm. he started thinking, I've got this. 
he said he's never thought like that. I mean, you know, those thoughts naturally would come up, but, yeah. but, but they were really there for him. And the next point, Roger Federer played one of the great backhands on the run. Mm-hmm. Do you remember that? Oh, I mean, yes. two points in a row that mm. were just sublime. Nadal went on to win it in the fifth set. He lost that tie break. Mm. But a part of him went, well, I thought ahead of myself. And so that's a part of choking. Yeah. When you're taken out of the moment, when you're not playing the point as it comes to you, what's the difference, Remo, in a ball that's hit your forehand at one all in the first set, love, 30, and match point in the fifth? There's no difference to the ball. No, just what's happening between your ears. That's right. Mm. The great players are able to lift on the big points as well because they adjust. Yeah. You know, they play it for what it is. You yeah. know, they don't shrink. Yeah. And the last point is the whole thing that there is no such thing as a draw. In the back of your mind you know that this has to end somehow. Yeah. I can't run the clock down. There needs to be a loser. There's only two of us playing, so there's a 50% chance it's going to be me, especially after I've blown that sitter that I should have hit. The fact that this sense of finality, there will yeah, be a winner yeah. and there will be a loser. There's mm. no draw ever in tennis, even with the Eisner-Mahut match, which went to 70 to 68 in the fifth <laughs> at Wimbledon. I mean, they would have loved to have had a draw at some point, I'm sure. Oh, look, that was talk of somebody hiring a sniper just to take at least one of them out. But no, no, but that's right. Look, and that went over three days, but went, there had to be a winner. And there was. And yeah. at the end of the day, on a tennis court, blood must be spilt. I know that's a very crude way of putting it. Very sacrificial. Well, it is. Cult way. But either the winner walks off with the blood of their opponents on their hands in one way, or the loser walks off with their own blood on their hands. It's brutal. She's done the set match. Miss Nalakna. Two sets to love. 6-4-7-6. Arguably the most famous choke in tennis history... In 1993 at Wimbledon against Steffi Graf, the great Steffi Graf, Novotna lost the first set 7-6, then she won the next 6-1 and was up 4-love, I believe. So I think she won 10 out of 11 games. She was playing out of her head. And then it was a famous choke, and you remember it well. Mm. And she cried on the shoulder of the Duchess of Kent. It brought a tear to everyone's eye in in the stadium. No one was more surprised than Steffi Graf. Mm. She thought she was gone and she said that later. She thought, there's no way I can beat Yana today. So we're looking at the Yana Novotna story. And a story that essentially went over a time span of six years. And if we look at it, it has all the elements of a great story. We have the quest, we have failure, and we have redemption, all tied up into that period of time from 93 to 98, where she... Choked in 93, failed again in 97 against Hingis. Let's face it, she's lost to Graf and Hingis. Mm. You know, we're not talking lightweights here. Then the opportunity presents in 98 against the French player, Natalie Torsier. And she takes it. It didn't matter who she beat. What was important was that she'd been to the pit and climbed out of it and was able to place that flag on the mountain, and it was just a wonderful moment. It was one of those moments when you thought, all's good with the world, and, you know, there's a Hollywood ending to some things. She was a very good tennis player, and she played a Mm. really attractive style, really very much like Martina Navratilova, Mm. a right-handed version, I think, Navratilova. Well, very attacking, uh, coached by Hannah Mandlikova, who who was another great 
attacking player. Just a forgotten player. A little bit, yeah. yeah and yeah. Uh, I'm sure we'll be covering uh, the forgotten ones in another podcast Absolutely. down the track. But yeah. can we turn our attention now to Ivan Lendl? Ah. Okay, so... I don't know why I said ah like that, but I did, so... Just the mention of Lendl's name. Ah, oh, I've seen that. I haven't seen it. Brings out some emotions <laughs> in you, Buzz. I just wouldn't do that in front of Lendl if I were you. I was going to do it again, but I didn't. Just for the sake of our listening audience, I didn't. <laughs> but there's another story, again, that we can put under this category of from choker to champion. Can I just say, I think a lot of listeners will be surprised. Yes. Because when they look back at Lendl, another underrated, I think, mm-hmm. right, they see that he won so much. He won eight slams and they're going, what are these guys talking about? Choker? He wasn't a choker. You he call, won eight you're slams. You're calling a guy with eight grand slams a choke? I'm turning off. Yeah, Don't turn off. I'm going to come around to your place and sort you guys out. Just, you know? just, just hold on because Ivan Lendl started his career, again, essentially being labelled as the next big thing. A lot of people describe Lendl as the father of modern tennis in the new age in terms of training and the power and the modernity of his strokes. Mm. There's still still a blueprint in many ways. Lendl lost his first four Grand Slam finals. Four? His first four. Do you know what they were? Because I know he lost the 81 French to Borg and he would have lost a couple of US's, wouldn't he? I'm sure he lost a couple. Yeah, it would have been US's. It was, yeah, it was, it was US's. I'm sure he lost three US Open. Yeah, before it, he won one. I know he yeah. lost 82 and 83 to Connors. Right. I'm pretty sure it was four Grand Slam finals. You know what? I shouldn't have asked the question. I, I take back the question without reservation. Yeah. Buzz, I've always told you, never ask me a question that I don't know the answer to. I mean, it's very clear. Do you know who first said that? Esna Boyd. <laughs> See, I asked the question. I, had no, I didn't account. <laughs> but anyway, just getting back to Ivan Lendl, please. For a period there, he was known as a choker. I remember it well. You remember it well. I do. There was even a, a choking position players were starting to use on returning serve for Lendl. You remember that? They would have their racket in their hand and their other hand around their neck while mm. they were waiting to receive serve, which mm. didn't go down very well. Especially with Lendl, who with, was an irascible type. Well, irascible is one word for yeah, it. But, yeah. yeah. I was being nice. What happened was he had his breakthrough at the 1984 French Open. And his coach at the time was Wojciech Feeback, great Polish really? player. And here's an aside for you. Did you know that Wojciech Feeback actually gave Pope Paul II tennis lessons? The only pro I know that's uh, coached a Pope. Because he was Polish, wasn't he? Exactly. And John Paul II was Polish. So there was the connection. Wow. Anyway, that's an aside. Apparently, apparently the Pope gave me some very good feedback. Yeah. Anyway. Cutting that out. (laughs) (laughs) But talking about a match, Buzz, that swings a legacy, that match, either McEnroe goes on to win the calendar slam, and if Lendl loses, does he come back from that? That's right. It's one of those turning points in tennis history. Absolutely. And it's worth mentioning that John McEnroe to this day has nightmares about that match. Interviewers ask him about it, and he reacts pretty strongly. And I saw an interview with him where he said, well... And he was being, you know, pretty relaxed and whatever about it. But he said, you know, my legacy would be far, far greater if I had won that match. He said, I'd be remembered as a greater player than I, I am well, being remembered now. Well, he'll tell you that he choked that match away. Well, this is a question I have for you about that match. Mm. Did he choke? Because he says he choked. It was two sets to love. They were still on serve, I believe. Did Lendl just pick up his game and was McEnroe fit enough on clay? The narrative is from McEnroe that he choked. Maybe it's more palatable for him to believe that. Than to say he was run down. Well, it's interesting. If you watch any matches of McEnroe playing, he misses a shot and he's very quick 
to hold a hand up to his throat. He'll do that whole simulation of a choke. I agree with you. Is he faking his choking when maybe it was just that he didn't hit the shot properly? Yeah, exactly. So there is a bit of a blur there between when is it a choke or when is it a comeback? Now, in the Novotna one, it was definitely a choke Mm. because Graf herself said, I was gone. That is the definition of a choke. I think when someone is that far ahead and and controlling it that much. Yeah. So there you go, Ivan Lendl. The Ivan Lendl story. Well, joined by Teddy Shingles, raconteur, bon vivant, lover of life, uh, liver of love, I'll put it that way. Teddy, we're very honoured to have you here. I know that you're very interested in this topic. Absolutely, Rima, absolutely. Thank you for having me. It's always a pleasure. Of choking. No, no, it's our pleasure totally. Now, we've just been talking about Ivan Lendl, a man who was on the precipice of losing five Grand Slam finals. Now, you're about to tell us, I believe, about a man who, in fact, went over that precipice, a man we all know and love and respect, a man some of us call Fiery Fred, uh, others refer to him as Ole Stolle, but we all know him as Fred Stolle. Teddy, can you tell us a little bit about Fred and some of the demons he was battling in his career in the 60s? You must remember about Fred that he lost his first Five Grand Slam finals. Mm. Now, I know you're talking mm. about Ivan, who lost four. Mm. But to lose five, you mm. must wonder if the gods have sought to single you out mm-hmm. for some kind of special tragedy. Well, it, it almost reminds me of that scene of Jason of the Argonauts where the gods are up there and moving their chess pieces. And the chess pieces, of course, are the, the people down on earth and they're just at will dictating their fate. And I can just see Fred Stolle as one of those chess pieces. And I think for him, I agree with you there, that the gods were pivoting him around the earth because it wasn't just one major that he was losing. He lost Australian and Wimbledon together. 63, 64, 64, 65. Mm. And a US, I think you can throw one in there. There's in there as well. I'm I'm not wrong. No, no, you're right, Teddy. It, It is five. We're talking about 63 Wimbledon, 64 Australian, 64 Wimbledon, 64 US, and the 65 Australian. Well, I talked to him after the 65 Australian. He was distraught. Oh, he must have been just wretched. He was a shadow of his former self, and his former self was somewhat of a shadow. He was drinking straight out of a bottle, straight out of a bottle in a plastic bag. Of course, it was only Coca-Cola. He was wretched, though. Mm. I think it's the only word, Mm. wretched. Yeah, now, apparently Fred disappeared after that Australian 65 loss, he jumped on a plane without telling anybody and went missing for a while. Now, yes, he did. Can you, can you fill us in what happened next there? He went to Europe. Mm. He travelled around seeking anybody who could possibly help him. As I've said, he thought the gods were against him. But was he just wandering streets, yelling out, can you help me? Like, was there any order to, to this? Fred had a plan. He, he consulted many religions and he consulted many holy men. He consulted psychiatrists, psychologists, psychoanalysts, faith healers Mm. of many description. It ends up in Sweden, in Stockholm, Mm -hmm. in a confessional box of a Catholic church there. I didn't see that coming. Well, no, nobody did. He said to me later that he was at his wit's end. He tried everything he could. He saw this church on a hill. He climbed that hill and he had a feeling in his loins, he said later, a buzzing that was not unfamiliar 
But in this regard, yes, a little, a little unfamiliar. He entered the church and it was a beautiful stained glass window at the end. And there was St. Peter. And yet when he saw it, he saw himself. Stolly over the altar. And he wondered, well, if I am to be crucified by the tennis gods, let it be here. And as he said that, he heard a little rustling noise in the confessional box, and there was a sign that said, open in Swedish. Now, Fred didn't speak Swedish, did he? No. But in that moment, he understood what he needed to do, and he walked in, sat down in the confessional box. Now, inside was Father Sergei Nordstrom. Mm. Now, that name to tennis aficionados... Mm. It rings a bell. It ring a bell. Fred started to babble. You know Fred mm. in his commentary. When he starts a sentence... There's no telling where that sentence will end. Right, very true. Will it end with a sensible, rational mm. exclamation? Or will it just end with him thanking the ball boys? Sometimes phrase bumps into phrase of different sentences. He's hoping the mosaic will form some sort of commentary. It's, it's quite a remarkable thing. He's, he's like a cubist painting when he commentates. You have to put it together in your own mind. In, yeah, in he case, makes you work as a viewer. He does, and that's, that's his art. Yeah. Yeah, In any right. case, he sat there talking to the father, and the father listened patiently. So he's confessing as he sins these five Grand Slam losses? He was remonstrating with a God that would leave him out in the winter cold mm. of Grand Slam misery. Mm. Now, Father Nordstrom gave him his penance mm. afterwards, mm. but Fred went and did Now, I don't know what this penance was. Well, of course, it, it would be confidential. A very personal thing. Yeah. But within one month... I, I literally mean four weeks mm. here. Four mm. weeks, 4.233 weeks. Or 4.3. I don't know how much a month is in weeks, but it's around about 4.3 weeks. So. Thereabouts. He goes on and wins the 1965 French Open. It's amazing. What a remarkable story it was. But, you know, word spreads, obviously, because Stolly cannot keep his mouth shut at the best of times. I mean, he should see him at a funeral. In any case, yeah. every choker on that continent... Mm. Made a beeline, a beeline wow. to Father Nordstrom's wow. confessional. Nice. And he turned no one away. Mm. He was a good man of God, a good man of faith. Yeah. And players with weak backhands, mm. chronic foot falters, possessors of weak second serves. My goodness, all, all came flocking. It was like a pilgrimage. And Father Nordstrom, well, he helped just about all of them. Wow. In one way or another, you can't say they won a Grand Slam. No. But that moment when they came over the top of that backhand and they hit their first topspin backhand in their lives. Thank you, Father. Well, the gods were on their side that day. That's all I will say. Wow. Amazing. And what happened to, to the good father? Because I believe, uh, word spread, thanks to Fred Stolle, but uh, Leonard Berglund, who was the Swedish Davis Cup coach at the time, caught wind of this. A young Leonard, well, a young girl Leonard Berglund, and we're used to seeing, we, mm. in the footage, we're used to seeing him up in Borg's box. Yes. And he looks old and like a scholar, I used to call him, cheering Borg on. Yeah. A lovely man, I knew him well mm. in later years. Berglund, he, he was always after an edge, Leonard. Mm. Right. And he went to the church, and what he found shocked him, mm. shocked him mm. to the core. Berglund walked in on Nordstrom. He was in the middle I was trying to exercise the topspin out of the forehand of a frightened Martin Karlstein, calling it the work of the devil. Oh, goodness. And Martin Karlstein was on the Swedish Davis Cup team, I believe, a young rookie player. Well, Berglund went to the authorities. Well, in the church, I don't know what you call them, and 
Nordstrom was dismissed. My goodness. It was a terrible thing in Sweden at the time. I think it's, it made Berglund's name in some way. Mm. He was tied with Nordstrom for some time. He didn't like that until Borg came along. Right. Of course. He was excommunicated. Goodness. Nordstrom. And he was last seen wandering the outside courts at mm. Wimbledon. A disheveled and broken man. Teddy, thank you very much for enlightening us with a tale that I'm sure very few of our listeners would have known about. Well, I feel relieved having gotten that off my chest. Mm. It's something I haven't really told. And thank you for the opportunity, Remo. And oh, uh, please give right. my best to Buzz as well. I will. Yes. Uh, I, I must go. Good, good, good evening. <laughs> what is the greatest choke in tennis history? And the nominees are... Gabriella Sabatini versus Mary Jo Fernandez, the 1993 French Open quarterfinal. Sabatini was leading 6-1-5-1, and then she gets the yips on her serve, and then five match points come and go, and Fernandez wins 10-8 in the third. She's still scratching her head. Absolutely. Correa versus Gaston Gaudio, the 2004 French Open final. Having cruised through the first two sets, Correa loses a tight third set, and a combination of cramps and a lack of belief sees him capitulate in the fourth and then succumbing 6-8 in the fifth. Very interesting match, Buzz, where both players were thought to have choked People thought that Corey's cramps were being faked. It was just... It was out there, wasn't it? It was out there. And the third, Serena Williams versus Roberta Vinci, the 2015 US Open semi-final. Now, Serena Williams was two wins away from a calendar Grand Slam. Very rare. Mm. Hasn't been done since Steffi Graf in 1988. And Vinci is ranked 43 in the world and has never taken a set from Serena in the four times they've played. So after winning the first set 6-2, Serena loses the next two sets, 4-6-4-6, and the match. And the winner is... Serena Williams versus Roberta Vinci, 2015 US Open semi-final. Are they coming onto the stage? Where are they? <laughs> They're both here to give us an acceptance speech. I'm sure some of our listeners can think of other great chokes. We're not saying these are definitive, but in our opinion, the Serena williams Roberta Vinci match mm-hmm. has so much weight behind it oh. in terms of a choke that it's hard to ignore. Buzz, when we look at the detail behind that match, I don't think there can be an argument. Let's look at it. The stage. We're talking about a Grand Slam here, US Open. The stakes are huge because we're not talking about simply winning a match to go into the final to pick up another major. We're talking about something far bigger than that, the opportunity to win a calendar Grand Slam. So Serena has won the Australian, she's won the French, and she's won Wimbledon. Mm -hmm. This is her big chance to win the Grand Slam. She was absolute favourite to win this Grand Slam. It was almost in the bag. 
if anything can be in the bag in sport, yes, she has to beat Roberta Vinci, who she's played four times prior. She's never lost a set. And it has to be said that Roberta Vinci doesn't have weapons. All she's got is a slice backhand that she forged in the wheat fields of Calabria with a sickle. If I'd known that, I would have put some money on her. What are you talking about? <laughs> no, I, I mean, and, and, we're talking 21 majors. Serena had 21 majors at that time. Vinci had none. Never made a final. Uh, you look at all of that, obviously the only plausible explanation was that Serena was seeing everything through the prism of a Grand Slam being on the horizon and there you go. Now, I heard a story that after she won the first set, Serena, Roberta Vinci was at 250 to 1 to win the match. The one thing that Roberta Vinci had, and in hindsight, her greatest weapon in this situation was that she was a runner and she ran everything down. So it made Serena think. The balls were floating back. Now, this isn't the French Open where it's hard to put a ball away. This is this US Open, which is a fast, hard court. Mm. That's Serena's wheelhouse. Mm. It's just one of those instances where that particular strategy bore fruit because Serena started to think about the Grand Slam. For sure. And when you think about it, though, boy, the US Open has not been a happy hunting ground for Serena Williams. She's had all of her traumas and dramas happen in that tournament. I think if you ask her when she ends her career to talk candidly about her experiences, not only at at the US Open... But in parts of America. Interesting. I think you'll hear some, some interesting comments. Yeah, she's had a lot of problems at the US Open oh. over the years and some um, some defeats. That's the thing with these great players. There's always going to be someone who can play a great match and play it out of their head and beat them. But I don't think this was one of those examples. No. This is a case of Williams had the game in hand and started to think. Black and, and, and white. It's black and white. You're right, Buzz. So that's why we think we put it up there as the greatest choke Mm -hmm. because what was at stake? The level of the opposition, and that's no disrespect to Roberta Vinci. She played what she could play and she played it really, really well over her career. There's no disrespect to her. And in the end, she believed in herself. And what more can you Mm. ask of a player? So Vinci plays the perfect match, Mm. the perfect two sets, if you will, against Serena Williams by just playing her normal game that would normally be beaten. By running down every ball she can. It's yeah. quite a strange setup, isn't it? I mean, I wonder if Serena looks back and goes, I would have preferred to have played a power player that day. The ball's coming onto my racket, I don't have to think, it's just there for me. I think mm-hmm. she would have preferred it, but I don't think you would hear her ever say it. Admit it. No. That's our podcast today on choking. There's a lot of chokes that we've missed out on. We can't cover everything. No. Would you say we choked on that? I don't think so. I think choking is a very peculiar thing. People have different tastes in their chokes. You can't please all the people all the time, especially when it comes to choking. Buzz, tell me, what do I need to do? You have to press the button. Which button? Stay with me, fella. Which button? It's the one marked follow or subscribe. Press the button and you'll get notifications each time a podcast is released. He's choking. Remo, do me a favour. Anything. Go to Apple Podcasts and write a review. Of course. One more thing. Okay. Send an email 
to buzzandremo at gmail.com. So that's press the follow button, write a review at Apple Podcasts, and send an email to buzzandremo at gmail.com. And one more thing. Really? Go to Twitter, search for podcast off the frame. So that's press the follow button, write a review on Apple Podcasts, send an email to buzzandremo at gmail.com, and go to Twitter. One last thing. Tell your sister that I love her. I don't have a sister. I think I've made a big mistake.